you are here for the first time with us, we're so glad that you decided to worship with us today. I mean, as we kind of reflect back on this past week, thinking about Hurricane Ian and all of it uh, just kind of happened here in Tampa and even south of us. You know, here up here, we have much to be thankful for. But as the body of Christ, we want to do whatever it takes to love those around us, to our neighbors the south of us. And so we are a whatever it takes church. And so we want to love our neighbors well. We want to love those. And so we want to, we want to like, mobilize people as much as we can and help those in need. And so uh, just be on the lookout in the weeks uh, and months ahead of what that looks like for us as a church. Uh, but today we're going to be in quite possibly uh, the most popular text in the book of Joshua. We just started kind of our trek through the book of Joshua. And today we're going to see the fall of Jericho. You know, it's one of those Bible stories that makes for an incredible story where God just kind of shows off his grandness and power. But when we think about the fall of Jericho in this story, we often start in chapter 6 with God's famous instructions to march around the wall. But I do believe that the story should begin way before that. And the often skipped over chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the not so exciting chapter of uh, Joshua. Uh, But chapter 5, it is incredibly significant. And so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to treat chapter 5 and chapter 6 kind of like a five-part play with five different scenes and all kind of leading in the same direction with several different themes that we'll see along the way. And, I, and I'll tell you where we're going in just a minute, kind of after scene one. And so hang with me. And I want you to give me about 10 or 15 minutes uh, to explain chapter five before we get to the wall of Jericho. And so just as a note, Uh, about this entire Joshua series. We're not reading every single verse. And so I do want you to, I don't want to encourage you to read, be reading this on your own time to read through uh, Joshua when you get get the chance. Um, But before we get into our five scenes of chapter five and six, I do want to remind you of what's happened so far. Um, You know, last week in chapter three and four, we saw God's people finally enter into the promised land that God promised his people. We saw it happen through a miraculous event where God's people, they came up to the the border of an extremely uh, large river called the Jordan River. You know, there were four priests that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God lived. It was showing the presence of God among his people. And these four priests, they carried the Ark and they stood ankle deep and then they uh, waited. And then God parted the Jordan River and over 40,000 people walked through uh, the Jordan River on dry ground. And as we saw, they went from the dry and weary land of the desert wilderness and they entered into the fruitful and fertile land of blessing in their new land. And it it was when we saw God do the impossible uh, to accomplish what he had promised, to accomplish his plans and purposes. So they just saw God do this incredible work. They took time to stop and make a way for the generations to follow after them to remember what God did. They set up those 12 stones, uh, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, so that all the people of the earth would know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that they would fear the Lord their God forever. And then in response to that, as soon as we enter into chapter 5, we see kind of the news of this event. We see it spreading quickly. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what it says. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so again, news has spread quickly about what happened and how God kind of dried up the waters and how all the people walked through. And then it says all the kings in this new land, it says their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so I want you to just think about this moment for God's people. Like God just did this miraculous work. It was a total miracle. 
They knew they had been uh, promised this land and they were finally standing in this land like they made it to the land. I mean, they just spent 40 years in the weary wilderness, 40 years kind of wandering around in the desert, and they finally made it. And the people that are currently in the land, they're terrified, like they're shaking in their boots. Like this is a very pivotal moment for them. And I'm no military commander, but this seems like the time to attack and take over. And if you remember, we saw back in Joshua chapter 2 that when they went into Jericho, they had to hide in the wall in a prostitute's home named Rahab. Like these people, they're up against, they were no joke. And these people have heard how God just did this miraculous work and their opponents are on their heels. Again, this seems like the time to charge the hill and go and take what God had promised them. Like this seems like that Braveheart, uh, William Wallace moment when all the men of war are screaming and shouting and ready for battle, believing that God was with them and fighting for them. But New City, that wasn't God's plan. So we must ask, what, did God, what was God's plan? Look at the next two verses of chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeath Haraloth. <laughs> so that was the Lord's plan. God didn't tell them to immediately charge the walls of Jericho. No, he told all these grown men of war to go and be circumcised. Like this seems like one of those great moments that just went painfully sour, okay? All these grown men have been wandering around in the desert and God's like, hey, Joshua, go get the knife. Like we're going to have a circumcision party. Like I don't know if you've ever been upset about how God orchestrates events in your life, but this seems like one of those times when maybe you're not real happy about God's plans. But we have to ask, like, why in the world would, take this, would God take this great moment and do this? Like, the land is ready for the taking with 40,000 people ready to go. And God's like, now seems like a really good time to circumcise all of our great warriors and just sideline them for a few days. You know, I say all of this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I must say that this moment, it's incredibly significant. We can't miss this because, yes, God could have easily said, now is the time to go, but he didn't. Church, and this is scene one of our, of our five-part play today. Like God pretty dramatically showed this is a significant moment. And in this moment, like this, was, uh, this, was, like this moment was not for their future blessing of land, but rather to remember and uphold their covenant relationship with God. Like they were remembering the covenant. You know, back in the book of Genesis, God made the promise to Abraham to give them this land. Back in Genesis 12 through, through 17, God made, and God made circumcision the sign of the covenant. So God didn't just promise them this land uh, and then they could do whatever they wanted to. No, they had to hold up their end of the deal also and circumcision was part of it. And them showing their commitment to the promise that God gave them. And yes, I know that this seems pretty strange to us today. Okay, But from God's perspective, it showed the covenant for their future generations that was displayed through reproduction. So just think about this with me. From a purely medical perspective, circumcision today is done as a means to prevent future infection. But from a biblical perspective, it symbolizes a commitment to God's covenant and to remain pure and obedient and uninfected from sin. So it was a commitment to pass on obedience and purity and holiness to the Lord for future generations. So this would be much how we view a marriage covenant. It's simply a commitment to one another. And so what does God do as soon as they get into the land he promised them? He reminds them and asks them to keep their end of the covenant. 
He reminds them, he, he asks them to hold their end of the deal. And so if I lost you at any point in all that Bible talk, okay, God is essentially showing them and he's confirming with them, hey, we're in a two-way relationship here. Because what we can't forget and all that we're seeing throughout the book of Joshua with all these incredible tasks is that God is accomplishing all of these things. He's doing it for his people. God is doing them because he loves his people, showing them that God keeps his word. But we must understand is that God does this because he desires for his people to love him and to worship him. Because again, this is a two-way relationship. Like God created every single person to worship God and to obey him and to be in a love relationship with God. Like the intended design for every single person on the planet, including you and me, is to worship God and to obey him, but in a relational, loving way. And we see all of this and we intrinsically know that we were all created to worship. Like uh, we all give all to something. And we worship something. We either worship God or, or, or we worship stuff or school or sports or people or comfort or possessions or fun or whatever it is. Like we were all created to worship. And in this very special moment in Joshua 5, which seems like the time to accomplish the task that God set out to accomplish, God in his divine plan says, hey, do not forget me. Like don't forget your promise to me. Don't forget that your obedience is essential to accomplishing the task ahead. Because remember, back in chapter 1, we saw God's call to Joshua. That God would use Joshua to inherit the land that God promised. And he called him to be strong and courageous. And we love that part of Joshua 1, to be strong and courageous. And we should because God told it to Joshua three times. But let's not forget the other part of Joshua's call from verses 7 and 8 of Joshua 1. God called Joshua and Joshua's people to be strong and courageous, but to do what? It says, to do all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. To not let God's law depart from them and to be careful to do all that was written. So get this. Okay, God didn't just call Joshua to be courageous to go into war, but he also called Joshua to be courageous to obey. So obedience to God and his law and his word, it was essential to their task. They needed to obey the Lord. And their first step of obedience, once they got into this promised land, was to renew their covenant. And then if we were to kind of go and read verses 4 through 7 of chapter 5, still in this first scene, we'd see that all of these men spent 40 years in the wilderness and not a single one of them had, made, had yet made their commitment to the Lord. And so what did they do as soon as they got into the land? They made a commitment to the Lord. They renewed their end of the promise. And church, this idea of our obedience, it is pivotal, pivotal to God's mission in our lives today. And what we just saw with all this circumcision talk, it just kind of sets up the rest of our time, leading us to our main idea. Worshipful obedience is central to the mission of God. Like if we don't obey the Lord, we can't accomplish what, it calls, what God calls us to do. And I add worshipful obedience because I think we know there's a difference between worshipful obedience and kind of like a begrudging obedience. It's the difference between obeying with a smile and delight and obeying with frustration and anger. One does it joyfully and the other does it kind of huffing and puffing and grunting and stomping their feet and fighting and screaming. Like has anybody ever been there? I know I have, okay? But in, in, in the way that I'm differentiating this today, like worshipful obedience, it first looks to God, 
is then in awe, worships the Lord, and as a response, out of worshiping the Lord, we then obey in joy. We're begrudging obedience. We first look to the rule. We see God, and then we obey out of frustration. Y'all, we need to get this. Like when we first look to God and worship, obedience becomes an extension of our worship. But we're on the flip side, when we first look to what God instructs us to do, we may get frustrated at God because it may go against our own wants and desires. And as we think about this today, we see that worshipful obedience is essential to God's mission. Because remember, our relationship with God, this is a two-way deal. It's a two-way street. Like we want God to be pleased with us and bless us. And today, because of Jesus, for those who put their faith in Jesus, he is. But yet, also, God wants us to be pleased with him and to worship him. And yes, we see this with our relationship with God, but we, I think we also get this just from our everyday relationships. Like with our kids, for example. When we ask them to do something, like just maybe clean up the room or put the dishes away, we desire for their obedience to be done out of loving respect and not begrudging duty. Like kind of stomping their feet in frustration in the process. Or maybe with a spouse or a friend. When we ask them for a favor, them doing it out of cheerful delight, it warms our hearts towards them more than them doing it out of annoyance. Like, you see the difference? Like, God wants us to delight in him. Again, God here, as soon as they step foot into the promised land, God reestablishes their relationship and their commitment to one another. So God was seeking to show them that their greatest blessing, this is important, their greatest blessing was not the land but rather their greatest blessing was their covenant relationship with God. Like that was their, their greatest blessing. And y'all, in chapter five, it just seems like one of those chapters we should just kind of gloss over because it's not super exciting. But again, this chapter is pivotal and essential to all that they're about to accomplish. Like God is using this defining moment to recenter them and their priorities before they go a step further. Because if you look at verse 10 of chapter 5, like still in this first scene, we see them then keep the Passover, like as a means to worship and obey. And when God's people obeyed the Lord by renewing their covenant and keeping the Passover, look what God did to close out this first scene. You know, after 40 years of eating manna from heaven, if you remember from the, the Exodus, as a reminder, like they didn't always love eating this. Look what it says in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5. And the day of the after Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And so what did God do after they confirmed their covenant? He let them enjoy the blessings of the promise. Like they got to actually eat and enjoy the food from this land. They got to simply just delight in the Lord's gift to them. Like this was the blessing of the covenant. Like just like we saw last week, yes, we need to have a healthy view of suffering and hardship. We must expect trials in this life. They will happen. I mean, hurricanes uh, and devastating events, they will happen. Sickness and relational troubles and financial struggles, they will happen. While at the same time, we must also know God loves to bless his people with good gifts. We cannot lose sight of this. And on the heels of a major devastating hurricane, we can and will see both of these play out. Like we've seen tragedy and hardship, and now we as a church, we have the privilege to be the hands and feet of Jesus, just to be a small blessing to those around us. 
You know, God, our Father, he loves to bless his children with gifts that they can enjoy. And not only that, he also loves to use his people to deliver those blessings. And church, we can do this in a very practical way, just with hurricane relief, just as an example. And yes, we need to be careful not to sway over to a prosperity theology that thinks only blessings will come when we follow the Lord, because that's not true. But we also can't fall into a poverty theology that says only suffering will come. Like we need to have uh, and must have a theology of both suffering and blessing. God allows and gives both. And God is good in both seasons. And I know I just covered a lot in that first scene. But all of that was said to show our main idea that obedience and worship are central to the mission of God. So that was like the obedience and worship part. Now let's kind of get into the mission part and jump into our popular story in the fall of Jericho. So look at uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13 and 15, to see scene 2. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him and with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this is scene two where Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army. Like the next, the next four scenes are going to be, they're going to come quicker. Okay. So, but just notice that Joshua was by Jericho. He was by the wall where he had already been before as a spy. And he had also sent two other men as spies. And Joshua knew, he knew the task ahead of him. And so Jericho was a city that wasn't that big in today's perspective, but it was surrounded by a massive wall. And they knew that left to their own strength, they could not conquer this city. And so I just imagine Joshua kind of sitting by this city, wondering, okay, God, you said you're going to give us this land, but just kind of trying to figure out how. And so I just imagine him sitting there staring at the city wall, knowing and trusting God will give it to them, but he has no clue how this will happen. And then all of a sudden, a man shows up with a sword in his hand, and Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man just simply says, no. <laughs> And in that moment, I imagine Joshua just saying, wait, well, that doesn't really uh, answer my question. And then the man says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. He's essentially saying, you asked the wrong question. Like, I'm not for either side. I'm actually the one in charge here, okay? And just to know, there's all, you know, there's all sorts of speculation about who this man was. Maybe it was an angel. Maybe it was God. Or maybe it was Jesus. In all honesty, nobody really knows. I personally don't think it was an angel. Because what did Joshua do? It says he worshiped. And an angel would not have let Joshua worship him. No, Joshua was on holy ground, it says. So I don't think he saw an angel. No, I think Joshua saw God as a warrior, and quite possibly he saw the face of Jesus. And so when Joshua saw his problem of Jericho ahead of him, wondering how is this going to happen? How are we going to conquer this, this area? What did God do? God showed himself and led Joshua to worship. Like Joshua took off his sandals and worshiped. Joshua was in awe of God. He had no clue how they would capture the city. And in that moment, Joshua's worry turned into worship. You know, we've seen this from the very beginning today. But again, just to reemphasize the point, Joshua's worship, it directed him into God's mission. Joshua's problem turned into God's provision through worship. 
And church, I don't know how you came in today. I don't know what problem you face today. I don't know what task is ahead of you or what struggle you're fighting to overcome. But I want us to see from this is that God doesn't call us to face our problems on our own. No, the commander of the Lord's army goes before us and fights for us, and God calls us to worship in our struggles and through our struggles. When we're, when we're led to worry about our problems, God calls us to turn our worry into worship, saying, God, I trust you. And, and no, worship is not only singing, but it is being in, it's just simply being in awe of God. It's looking to God in his word, through prayer, in, our, in all that we do, and seeing his grandness as greater than our struggles. So when we worship through our struggles, whatever it may be, our focus is not on our worries or circumstances or problems. No, our focus is geared towards the glory and the greatness and the grandness of God. It's kind of like when Paul, being, he was in prison in the book of Philippians, writing on joy and rejoicing because Paul saw and knew the greatness of God. Like he knew that Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, he knew that he was with him wherever he went. Again, I don't know what problems you may face today, but God calls us to worship through them, to look to God and be in just all of him and his glory. So I said, look at verse one of chapter six to see our next scene, our shortest scene. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in, seeing scene three, the false protection of Jericho's wall. Y'all, again, Jericho, the people were terrified. They heard what happened with the Jordan River and they knew what God could do. And so what do they do? They locked themselves up inside of their wall. Like this is the scene where we're just kind of gazing at this massive city wall, seeing the grandness of the wall that Jericho was hoping would protect them. And they were putting their trust in the fortress of a wall. They were putting their trust in man-made protection and strength. So Jericho knew the power of God. They saw it. They believed it. But yet they believed just maybe that their own personal provision of wealth and strength and military might could withstand the Lord. And we don't have to go too far into this story to see that, uh, how that would work for them. Like it didn't work. And what I want us to take away from this third scene as we're kind of gazing at this wall is that trusting in our own strength can hinder the mission of God. We see this with the people of Jericho. They were trusting in their own strength. They believed their protection was in their ability and in their own provisions. And as we enter into this story, I want us to see just these two opposing sides. One is trusting the Lord and the other is trusting themselves in their own provisions. One is with God and the other chooses their own strength. This stings, doesn't it? And as we see this, we need to just stop and just acknowledge the subtlety of this. The people of Jericho, they knew the power of God. They heard it, they even feared it, but when it came down to it, they trusted in their own provisional protection and not the Lord. And I can't help but think of how easy it is for us today to do the exact same thing. No, we do not have a literal wall of Jericho, but if I know anything about the human heart, I know that we too have things that we're tempted to trust to protect us over the Lord. Maybe things like our education or our reputation or our job or our resume or maybe our bank account. You know what I also know? We also do this with people in relationships. Like we, we put up walls around our hearts in order to protect ourselves from the possibility of being hurt. 
And yes, I do want to affirm that it's good and right to be careful with how we handle our relationships, especially dating relationships. But I also know that God desires for us to be in relationships with people. Like we need brothers and sisters in Christ around us and God desires a good, healthy, biblical restoration with his people. And these walls that we put up, they can keep us from restoration. And yes, we, we need to use wisdom here. And we need people around us to help us. But at the end of the day, we need to evaluate the walls in our hearts that may be keeping us from the blessings that God may have for us in relationships. You know, there are so many walls we may try to hide behind. And I don't know what these walls may be in your own life, but at the end of the day, we must remember in all areas, relationally, financially, whatever it is, we must remember that God is our ultimate protector. A mighty fortress is our God, as Martin Luther wrote. And church, like I said earlier, it doesn't take long to get into this story to see that that wall, it would not protect them. That wall that they were trusting to protect them, God would end up bringing it down, which leads us to the famous scene for the fall of Jericho. Look at uh, chapter six, verses two to five to see the Lord's instructions to Joshua as, as he enters into Jericho. Look at verse two. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with his kings and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once they Thus shall you do for this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall, shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. Again, this is scene four, the fall of Jericho. And as we just read, uh, those were the Lord's instructions to Joshua. Hey, just go and march. Like take your men and march around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, tell the priests to take their trumpets and have them toot their horns. And after they do that, tell all the people to yell really loud. And then after they yell, the wall will fall down flat. Can we just like acknowledge the silliness of this? Like, hey, Joshua, get your marching band together and have uh, the marching band let all these warriors at Jericho know that you're here with all of this music that you're going to be playing. And then on the seventh day, march around the city, toot some horns some more, and then, build the, and then the, the yell, and the, fall will, the wall will fall down. Like, this isn't the most stealthy mission. Like, there's nothing covert about a marching band. Like, I don't know about you, but screaming, it doesn't seem to make buildings fall down. Like if a military leader gave these orders that they, they would get laughed at and fired immediately. But you know what? That is the exact point. God wanted his people to know and be painfully aware that they did not do this, that this was the Lord's doing. Did the people play a part? Absolutely. If they didn't do their part of marching and playing the trumpets and yelling, it would not have happened. But when you look at the whole situation, it is made incredibly obvious that God made the wall fall down. What did God's people do in the whole thing? They worshiped God and they obeyed his orders. And what did God do? He made the wall fall down, showing us that God uses his people in the mission, but God accomplishes the task. New City, this is how the mission of God works. We worship the Lord, delight in the gifts he gives us, walk in obedience, doing what he calls us to do, and God does wonders and makes the walls fall down. 
And then if we were to keep reading in our text, we're not going to read it, but we'd essentially see Joshua and his people doing exactly what God called, called them to do. They just obeyed the Lord. Like the author intentionally shows God's people obeying and doing exactly what God said to do. So Joshua told the priest to get the Ark of the Covenant and their ram's horn and then told the people to march around the city with the priest, blowing the trumpets as they go and carrying the Ark. And they did this for six days. On the seventh day, they did it again. They marched around the city seven times. They blew the trumpets. The people shouted and the walls fell down. Again, this is the way the mission of God works. We worship the Lord. We walk in obedience and God does the heavy lifting and God makes the walls fall down. And as we think about this, this should give us so much comfort and confidence to know that those metaphorical walls in our own life, like those struggles and addictions and destructive habits and relationship struggles and all those we're praying for to respond in faith, the way in which God has designed for us to tear down those walls is to worship the Lord day in and day out, walk in obedience and let the Lord do his work. And if you've ever wondered, like, is prayer actually working? Why are we doing this? Why do we pray? If you ever wondered, like, reading your Bible and praying and singing and gathering together for corporate worship, like, does it actually change us? If you've ever wondered why the preaching of God's word is so essential to driving the church and how God works through it, maybe thinking, this all just seems kind of silly. Like, you're not alone in wondering how these strange things actually work. Because when God's people were marching around the wall of Jericho, do you think they ever wondered, what in the world are we doing? Like, this is a bit silly. But yet it worked. And I can't help but think when we gather to pray and sing and read God's word to the outside world, it may just seem really silly. And I can say that because I thought that for a long time until God captured my heart and changed me seeing that it actually works. New City, your neighbors and coworkers and friends and family that seem too far gone, listen, God is calling you to put your worry at his feet. And he's calling you to rest in worship, to delight in his good gifts, walk in obedience, pray and sing, get into the word, gather as the body of Christ and allow the Lord to do his work. And does God want to use us in the process? Yes. But we must acknowledge that God doesn't use us to show off how great we are. He uses us to show off his power and our dependence. New City, the greatness of scene four in the fall of Jericho is not only that God made the wall fall down. It's that God used the obedience and the dependence of his people to actually do it. Like, can you imagine the faith it took to march around a massive military city loudly just blowing these horns? Church, God today isn't calling us to march around our city so the walls will fall down. But you know what? He is calling us to pray for our city. He is calling us to pray for the impossible for our city and then to actually pray. We today, we don't ask God to break down stone walls, but we ask him to break down spiritual walls. We do that by simply just walking in obedience, believing that God can do the impossible and by praying and singing uh, and singing and sharing the word and just loving people. So let me ask, before we get into scene five, who is it that you're praying for, for the spiritual blinders to come down, for them to see the greatness of Jesus? Like, I want to call us to pray and plead, believing that God is able. So New City, look at one one last verse, verse 17 of chapter six. Just see our last scene. Look what it says. 
And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But y'all, there's more in this. You can go back and read the end of chapter 6, but I want to focus on this for the rest of our time because I want us to see that right before the wall came down, Joshua told them to save Rahab the prostitute. And why? Because she helped God's people. Look at it again, verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she did because she hid the messengers whom we sent. This is scene five. God saved Rahab the prostitute. We saw back in chapter two, Rahab made a declaration of faith and helped God's people. And Rahab's declaration of faith, proclaiming the Lord, it saved her from the destruction. So get this, the entire city was devoted over to destruction, as we see later in, in verse 24 of chapter 6. Like the city was set on fire. In verse 26, we see Joshua laid down an oath, cursing anybody that tries to rebuild this city. Like destruction and wrath was their punishment. New city Jericho, they experienced the wrath of God. Everyone except for the prostitute who professed faith in the Lord experienced God's judgment. And out of all people that were saved from destruction, God saw it fit to save a prostitute. Just just think about that. Out of everyone God decided to save, he saved a prostitute. And why? Not because of her holiness, but because she helped God's people. Like her faith led her to action. Rahab's faith saved her from destruction. New City, this is the gospel on display. Like this was good news for Rahab back then and the same good news for us today. Because listen, our sin today, it leads us to destruction. Just like the people of Jericho, their disobedience led them to destruction. New City, we cannot miss this. We see this throughout the entire book of Joshua. The people of Jericho, they were not innocent people. Like not a single person was innocent. They worshiped idols and other gods. They did not worship the God of the Bible. And because of that, they were all left over to destruction, except for Rahab, a prostitute. Like God saved a prostitute from her destruction. And not because of her holiness, but because of her faith. It was her faith alone that saved her, not her holiness. No, I think we get this. She was not holy by any Jewish standards. And us today, our sins, they lead us to deserve destruction in hell. But like Rahab, when we profess faith in the Lord, we today, each and every single one of us, when we profess faith in Jesus, when we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and paid for our sins, When we trust in Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God saves us. And it's not because of our holiness. It's totally because of our faith in the only one who was holy. Like God saves us because of our faith in Jesus alone. That's the only reason we have a relationship with God. Just like Rahab received what she did not earn, y'all, she received grace. She didn't earn that. New City, us today, if we have professed faith, we too have received grace. Listen, if you're here today, no matter 
where you think you are, no matter how far gone you think you may be, how, like, like how, how far gone you think others around you may be, like the gospel of Jesus, in this, this instance with Rahab in our story, it reminds us that nobody is too far gone. Like we see, we see this, that God's grace is greater than our sin, always. Like God's grace is always greater than our sin. Like nobody is too far gone. Church, this is good news. New City, God saved prostitutes. Jesus showed compassion to prostitutes. And not just that, he also then used them for his purposes. Listen, I don't know where you are today in your faith, but I do know one thing. You're not too far from the love of God. Today, you can be brought into the loving arms of Jesus who longs for you to to, to make you a part of his family forever into eternity. All you have to say is to say, God, I want to follow you. Like, I believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and the the sins at the cross. Jesus dying on the cross paid for my sins. And then we just tell someone, church, nobody is too far gone. Nobody. So let me ask, who are you praying for that seems too far gone? You know, one of my hopes is that each, each of us would have at least one person that we're praying for, for God to like radically save. Maybe you put them on your card a few weeks ago. Like when we all kind of gathered together, it took time to write them down, believing that God can restore, defeat, and save. So let me ask, who is it that you're praying for, for God to save? Maybe, maybe today you need to respond in faith. And just what if God desires to use us to go into the rubble of a person's life and God, in his power and mercy and grace, would just save them. And so as we end our time today, stepping back to reflect on just this entire story, God has made it really clear that our faith, worship, and obedience is what he desires from us. Like, God doesn't come to us and think, what can you do for me? No, he just wants us to sit at his feet, worship him, love him, and to delight in his goodness. He wants us to follow him wherever he leads us. And that may mean going into the rubble of a building that just fell down to rescue someone that the world has written off, like we saw in our story. And the response from that is that he then does marvelous works through us. And as we've seen, it's not because we're awesome in the hero, but because Jesus is the hero. And God simply just loves to use his people. New City, no wall is too big. No problem is too large and no person is too far gone. And so again, what do we do? We just worship and obey the Lord. And in God's timing and by his grace and in his own unique way, he will do marvelous things. No, we don't focus on the wall or the problem. No, we just focus on Jesus and the cross. Let's pray. God, your grace is so sweet. God, you delight and love to use broken people for your purposes. God, you love to come in and to restore us and to help us and to be with us. God, you go and you fight before us. God, you go before us. God, you're with us in the struggles. And then God, you even delight in using us for other people. God, there's so much to just take, uh, like just to rejoice in today, but God, we pray that out of all things, we would just look to you to worship you and rejoice in the cross, that all of our sins are, are washed white and clean and they're all gone because of the cross. God, if there's anyone here today that is yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus, God, we pray that they would just say yes to God, I want to follow you. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.